But to be able to to be able to share the things of God's word to people, to His people, and, and to the world around them, or around us, uh, it's 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 great. It's a great time to be able to do this. So, we are in Colossians chapter four now. We slid our way into uh, chapter four last time, and. Here, we're, we're going to be covering in Lesson 12, which is dealing with watching, walking, and witnessing. And I'm just going to put up the one main slide for tonight. We'll be looking at point one, section A. And uh, we'll be getting to that. But let's go ahead and just as a way of introduction for this lesson, we're going to, going to be looking at verses 2 through 6. And let's go ahead and read those. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be alway with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time here to be able to open your word, to be able to study from it, Lord, to be able to draw closer to you in these days, Lord. Tonight we'll, uh, just by your guidance, be able to look at prayer and and the importance of it again. Um, And and we see the need for that more and more each day as we go by, if our eyes are open and our hearts are tuned to you. Lord, help us to draw closer to you and and grow tonight here in this lesson. I pray for the filling of your spirit. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated. So watching, walking, and witnessing and continue in prayer is what we're going to be talking about tonight. And uh, by way of introduction to this lesson, who has ever been to an eye doctor? I can see people out there, so there's like a bunch of hands better go up. There's obvious signs that people have been to eye doctors out there. I have been to an eye doctor. No, I do not wear contacts. But in going to the eye doctor, I'm blessed to not wear contacts. Let's let's put it that way. Um, you're sitting in the chair, right? They put you in that uncomfortable position where you have to rest your chin on this little divot. It's painfully hard plastic that's never conforming to how my chin is, at least. I'm not sure about anybody else. And then you got to kind of contort your body just a little bit in the right spot because you got to get everything lined up. And they put this weird-looking mechanical looks like uh, Johnny Five from back in the day. Uh, The robot Johnny Five, if anybody knows what that is. Um, Johnny Five is alive. Uh, uh, But you're sitting here and you're flipping the, 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 is it an ophthalmologist? Ophthalmologist is flipping through these little lenses and you're trying to figure out which one is better, A or B, and they're either flipping one down or they're spinning one around and it's all kinds of gizmos and whirly whirly gigs that are going on here. So 
Has anybody been frustrated in that experience? You're sitting in this chair. It's completely uncomfortable. You've got this weird-looking goggle thing sitting in front of you, and you have somebody who's annoyingly asking you a question. A or B? Which one is better, this one or that one? And you have to give them an answer, right? You're given this either-or uh, question here. So how did you resolve this issue? Did any of you ever get to the point where one of, it's so close? It's so very close. Like, which one is the right answer? What answer do I give this guy? I know for me, I mean, my eyesight, I guess in order to maybe sell me a pair of glasses, they said, well, maybe you can wear a little bit of things to correct your one very slight little deviation in, in one of my eyes. I have an astigmatism in my right eye, I believe. Do I need glasses? Nope, not at all. But in order to sell them to me, they... They did that once. So what do you tell this doctor who's asking you which one is better, A or B? Anybody got an answer? What do you do when you can't tell the difference? I told him I can't really tell the difference. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, good, good. That's being honest right there. It's not, It's not, yeah, being honest in it, and you're not just arbitrarily picking, well, hmm, I said B last time, so I better say A this yeah. time. Um, but I'm pretty sure those guys have enough experience. They know when you're not telling the truth based on where they were before. I don't think you're going to get things past, past them that way. So when unbelievers look at a believer's life, let's consider it that way. When an unbeliever looks at a believer's life, they should have no trouble telling the difference between the believer and themselves, right? An unbeliever looking at a believer should, should see some differences. You should be able to pick A or B in this instance. If the unbeliever cannot tell the difference, now think of that, an unbeliever not being able to tell the difference between their actions, their attitude, their motivations, and those of a believer, I hope it's not due to um, the Christian living like the world, right? If somebody claims the name of Christ and is still acting like the world, I mean, then you're in that indeterminate state. You can't tell the difference. Is this really a believer or is it an unbeliever you can't really tell necessarily so be careful and what we should be careful and what we do that we we give um, no cause for that um, confusion that we have a clear testimony in our actions and our ways our speech the things we do the places we go these things we should be different we should be peculiar so question number one in your book. We'll start out with the questions right away. What are two or three differences an unbeliever should notice in a believer? Anybody have some ideas here? So what should, what, what's something that an unbeliever should notice that's different about a believer? Their speech. You have an answer, Nathan? The way they obey their parents if they're a kid that, that is a Christian. That's a very good answer. Sister Lynn? Dress. The way they dress, right? These, these should be things that are standing apart from the world. The world is all around us. We see what its values are. They aren't Christian. They aren't God-honoring. We should be different from that. You could say maybe a general positive attitude toward life and living. You know, what is... 
are we just generally down in the dumps all the time? Everything, woe is me, sort of attitude. Not, not to say that we don't get that way, right? Everybody gets a little bit down sometimes. Um, but are you characterized by that? Is that your normal? Does it only ever get as good as Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? We should, we should be a little bit, maybe a little bit more on the sane side of Tigger, but, um, but certainly better than Eeyore in our, our, our normal actions and interactions with people. So uh, lack of immoral paper, uh, behaviors, speech, our actions, our behaviors, those sorts of things as well that were already mentioned. All right, question number two. Why is living out life in this world as a believer so important? God has left us here, right? We got saved. If you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in, is doing some redecorating. If there wasn't a reason for us to be here, God would just take us home immediately. So why is living out life in this world as a believer so important? Pastor? part of our we're a witness of Christ Nelson right a witness to others try to try to share uh, Christ with others so they can be saved right spreading the gospel that's that's what we're here for is is propagation of salvation to other believers sister Lynn but it made me think kind of like when your dad tells you don't smoke and he smokes there has to be some kind of walk to back up that talk you have to have that testimony mm-hmm Right, this, is, this isn't a do as I say, not as I do uh, life, right? Do as I do, because I'm walking with Christ. Right, a Christian walk is, is a passive witness of Christ too, right? You're walking around living your life. People see you, you're different in your actions, in your motivations. The things about you are different than the world, and they're like, that's quite the odd duck walking down the street what's going on here. It's a passive witness of Christ. Now that's not to say that a passive witness should uh, supplant or take the place of an active witness of Christ. Of course, an active witness of Christ is more direct, confronts somebody directly, and in the right time, of course, uh, with right motivations, I should say. Uh, That's good. Uh, But the passive witness should never take the place of an active witness. Uh, for Christ. That being, you can't just go through your life and living a moral life, because I know people that follow the the Mormon religion are quite moral people, quite clean living people, but they're damned and going to hell because they don't trust the Jesus Christ of the Bible to forgive them of their sins. They think that they're working their way, and they're going to somehow earn salvation. Salvation can't be earned. We have nothing that we can give to God to offer up to him. So the passive witness is one thing. Active witness is, is good, is much better. All right. So the believer's prayer life, section one. So neither the posture we assume considering prayer now, considering our prayer life, neither the posture we assume whether we are laying down, prone, I mean, there are examples of that in the Bible and other, uh, others in, in uh, church history. Kneeling, common position for praying. Sitting, or even standing. You could even say driving in the car. Please don't close your eyes while you're driving in the car and praying. 
nor is the place we pray important right it's you don't come to church you're not going to a special little booth to talk to some guy behind a curtain you, you are taught you can talk to god in prayer reverently respectfully anytime anywhere any place and there's no prohibit prohib- prohibitation of where those things where that can take place but more important than the po- your posture or the place that you pray is the reasons you're praying what is the reason for praying and the attitude we bring to prayer those are extremely important why are we praying what is it for whose honor and glory is it for is it self-serving or is it god honoring and the attitude we bring to prayer is it just a flippant prayer of oh help me lord or is it an earnest pleading for god's intervention and, and interdiction in this lesson we'll study some characteristics of an of an effective prayer life so this word effective is kind of a charged word in some circles i'm not going to touch on which circles but they follow men often i mean it is what it is but maybe a question to ponder is what does the word effective mean in the context of prayer life things to think about while we're going through these lessons is it effective when we get what we want is our prayer life is our are our prayers effective when we get what we want or is our prayer life effective when our will aligns with god's will or maybe being obedient in our prayer life so rhetorically speaking this is hoping this is something i hope we can get out of these lessons here going forward here so rhetorically speaking a question to ponder is what does it mean to be effective in your prayer life something for you to think about so sub bullet a is constant so the first part of colossians 4:2 we'll just only get into this portion of it tonight continue in prayer now this word continue is interesting it's it's uh it's got a little bit more of an undertone to it in in what it's trying to convey here so the word translated continue connotes the following ideas to be earnest towards to be earnest in prayer constantly diligent to be constantly diligent in prayer to attend to with great care and perseverance and there was an interesting word in this particular definition that I've never heard of before but that's not saying much I'm not very well read or my vocabulary is about that big so to attend to with great care and perseverance in prayer assiduous assiduously I completely butchered that. If anybody wants to know what the actual word is and you can come up and tell me the correct pronunciation later, I'll show you my notes and you can come take a look. But I'm assured that that word means to attend to with great care and perseverance in prayer. So an interesting illustration from from working uh, many years ago now. We were sitting in a meeting and listening to people give status updates on their projects. And the status update from the one engineer was that his task was continuing to be ongoing. Okay, good. I got some chuckles out of that. It's a, it's a little bit of a my task is continuing to be ongoing. 
But if we consider that our prayer life, our prayer life should be continuing to be ongoing. It's a continuous thing. It is something that is that we're earnest in, that we're conti- constantly diligent. We're continuing in our prayer life. Now, this isn't to say that every day, all of your all of your time is spent completely in prayer. But are your thoughts instantly able to? Are your thoughts aligned with God first of all? And that connection and that link to God, which is our prayer life, is that active and open and and available and ready to go at a moment's notice? Is it something that you're constantly attending to, that you're earnest in, things to consider? That's what the the idea of what Paul is, is trying to convey here is continue in prayer is what he's telling us. Be earnest in our prayer life. Don't neglect it. It's not an afterthought. So in verse 2, this verse 2 here, I just want to set up a few things as far as, is, I believe the word is hermeneutic. Um, in, in the text follows after our last lesson, in last, uh, lesson 11. It follows after Paul's instructions to husbands, wives, children, fathers, employees, and employers. But Paul's instructions, starting here in verse 2, they're to all of the Colossians first. And that's who he's writing to. So in this case, it's not he's not saying that Continue in prayer is only applicable to employers. That's not a, a right uh, reading of the scripture here. This is this is a this is a, an instruction, a command to all the Colossians in its immediate in immediate context, and to us in this day and age too. Continue in prayer. That's where that's what we are to be doing. So I want to look at two examples of prayer, and where there's multiple examples of where. They're continuing in prayer. Now, this continuing in prayer is not a continual thing, but it is a continuous thing. And the first example will be in Judges chapter 20. The second example in Nehemiah chapter 1. So we want to look at these and try to compare and contrast two examples of a, of a, of a people or a person continuing in prayer, but what are its results? And what are its motivations that we looked at before? What is their reasons for praying? And what are their what is the attitude that they bring in this prayer? So if everybody's over there in Judges chapter 20, I'll briefly summarize what's um, gone on in, in Judges chapter 19 coming up here. But believers must not consider prayer as a last resort, but as a constant resource. Well, all we can do is pray. No, that's the first thing you do. <laughs> that's the first thing you do in anything, uh, even the smallest thing. You should not neglect to pray as our first resort. It's the first thing you do. It's not the last thing you do. That's that's ineffective. Now, for keeping notes, ineffective. Ineffective prayer, praying at the end of things. No, praying at the beginning of things. Someone has commented that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. Right. Our prayer life petitions to God immediately in whatever state we find ourselves in. It's where we should be. We should pray whether our circumstances are unfavorable or favorable. If we fail to pray in good times, we may develop a false sense of security, trusting in our own might. Right? And these good times that are coming along, you're not praying. Things are great. Bank account's great. Job's going great. Family's great. Car's not breaking down. All these different things. That's because of me. I did that, right? No. No, you're, 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 you're dangerously um, 
you're in danger of, of having that pride go before your fall. Just be careful. But then when the first wave of adversity comes, we're crushed, right? Things go bad at that point and you're like, oh no, what do I do now? All I can do is pray. No, that's the wrong attitude. So if we fail to pray during difficult times, we plunge into doubt and depression, right? If, if these hard times are coming along and you neglect your prayer life, you're just gonna fall further into the hole. But continue to trust God Talk to him in prayer. Lift him up. And he'll and he'll he'll raise you up through that. So here we have in Judges chapter 19 and 20, seeking the Lord in prayer first. So the story, the narrative goes that a Levite takes a concubine from Bethlehem, Judah. She runs back home. And uh, after some time he goes to fetch her and bring her back. In their journey back back to his home, they stay in a town called Gibeah in Benjamin where the Levite's concubine is abused and dies by men from Gibeah who were described very much like those from Sodom. If you look at the description of what's going on there, it's like you read this passage and it's like I'm, I'm back in Genesis. The same verbiage is being used there. So the same wickedness and folly that was done in Sodom, being done in Gibeah, being done in Benjamin, being done in the land, the land of Israel that God gave to the, the Israelites. That's still continuing. We see that same folly today in our land there's nothing new Solomon wrote there's nothing new under the sun it's very much very much true so then Israel all the remaining 11 tribes take it upon themselves to punish Benjamin without first seeking God's will in rash anger a civil war between Israel and Benjamin is about to break out so after this comes Judges chapter 20 verse 18 And the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God and asked counsel of God and said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, they're asking a very pointed question here. And in this asking at the house of the Lord, equating that to prayer, asking of God a petition of what should we do here? Our prayer life should be asking of God in these to direct my steps. But what we did what if you read earlier in a passage, they get really angry and they decide they're going to go punish Benjamin and all they're asking of God is not whether they should go. They're asking of God who should go first. They've already decided in their own wisdom who should go first. And God says Judah. But he's answering them very directly and very succinctly. He's not giving them a blessing at all. So notice that Israel did not ask if they should go to battle. They just asked who should go first. So what what is the motivation behind this prayer? Are they seeking God's will and his wisdom, or are they seeking God's blessing of their wisdom? Israel goes out to battle with Benjamin and Gibeah, but they're badly defeated. They lose some 20,000 men, something on that order. Now they come back. They're badly defeated verses 22 and 23 and the people the men of Israel encouraged themselves after they had had been defeated and set their battle against again in array in the place where they put themselves in array the first day so they lost and the first thing that they do after they lost is like okay we got this let's just we're going to stand here again we're going to load up with a bunch of more people and then we're going to we're going to get Benjamin we're going to defeat them 
Verse 23, and the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until even. Okay, so they're doing, they're sorry, right? They're crying. Lord, we need help here. There's, there's sorrow in this, but maybe not wisdom in what their petition is of the Lord. And the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until even and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up again to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Now, what we have here is kind of a partial uh, partial um, how to put it partial, partially relying on the direction of God. They're still primarily focused on what they want to do and their will and not necessarily what God's will is. But God's going to give them what they want. So they go up again. So what do they, well, first of all, what do they do after they suffer defeat? First, they set up their battle array for the next next day. They didn't seek the Lord first. And then they went and sought the Lord. Maybe this is, maybe this is out of order, right? Should you be seeking the Lord and the things that you do first? versus seeking the Lord to bless what you think you should do first, right? If we're in God's will, doing his will, and seeking his will first, and align our will to his will, we'll be in a right spot at that point. But that's not what Israel did this second time. So, predictably, Benjamin again defeats Israel on the second day. Now what did Israel do? They've been beaten twice, They've been relying in their own strength the first time, partially in their strength and asking for God to direct them in the second time. What do they do the third time? Verse 26, Then all the children of Israel and all the people went up and came unto the house of God and wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until even and burnt offerings and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the first thing they did was seek the Lord. They're getting it right now. They got it in the correct order. And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant was God, of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or shall I cease? Lord, what's your will for me to do? Am I to do this thing? Am I, I, am I to go to war? with Benjamin or am I supposed to stop they didn't go set their battle up they didn't go set their troops up they sought God's will first this time now it took them three times to get it right but they finally did and the Lord said go up for tomorrow I will deliver them into thine hand this is different than anything that God said to them in the past God has answered them each time he said Judah should go up first and the second time uh, go up against him this time, go up for tomorrow I will deliver them. And he's, he's telling them what the outcome of this will be. You've sought me in the proper order. You've sought me first. You've sought my will to do my will. And now here's what's going to happen. And the Lord did as he said, and Benjamin was smashed for its wickedness. So the stages of Israel's seeking of the Lord would be the first time. It's completely after the fact. They've already made up their mind, I'm going this way, and I'm doing this thing, and God is an afterthought. They decided what they wanted, then they asked for God's blessing. The second time, still focused on how they were going to get what they wanted 
by the way they were going to do it, arraying the battle before seeking God. And the third time, with a repentant heart and a contrite spirit, they sought the Lord first. They knew, okay, we've, we've done wrong here. Benjamin has done wrong. We're, we believe we're supposed to punish him. Is that right, God? Are we the ones you want to judge Benjamin? God answered them. Each time God answered them. But only when God has sought first is, are, we sh- are we certain that, that we'll be in his will and not our own will. So God is to be sought first is the lesson. So contrast Israel's conflict with Benjamin with Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. I believe the first lesson I was able to get up here and teach was out of Nehemiah chapter 1. We won't go long on this. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah hears a report back from a friend who came from Jerusalem and hears that its walls are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And this upsets Nehemiah. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays to God. He did not get angry and formulate a plan as Israel did against Benjamin. Right? This isn't Nehemiah's first action is to muster an army and say, we're going to retake Jerusalem now. No. His, his first things that he did were weeping, mourning, fasting, and praying to God, seeking God with a contrite spirit. He acknowledges God for who he is, if you read through chapter 1 of Nehemiah. He confesses the sins of himself, of himself and of the people of Israel, Israeli, the Israel people. He thanks God for his mercy and his goodness through all of this and makes supplication for mercy in the sight of Artaxerxes, the king. So these, this, is, this is a model prayer. There's an acrostic that goes with it. It's called ACTS, A-C-T-S, to acknowledge God for who he is. See, confess the sins of himself and Israel, or confess our sins. Thank God, thanksgiving, for his mercy and his goodness, and then supplication. Then you ask what you want. You acknowledge God for who he is, the great God of all creation. Confess your faults and your sins to God. Thank him for who he is and what he's done and his mercy toward us. And after doing that, the smallest part of the prayer, ask God for what you would like to have happen if it's his will. And this is what we see as a model prayer that Nehemiah had made. When Nehemiah meets the king and Artaxerxes asks him why he's so sad, his countenance is, is fallen. What does Nehemiah do? What's the first thing that Nehemiah does? Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? The king asked him a question. How does Nehemiah respond? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king. And it continues on. So the first thing you find Nehemiah doing is seeking the Lord in prayer. And we have an example of, uh, of a model prayer of how we could formulate our prayers. Um keeping sight on who God is and who we are and uh, uh, keeping that right relationship there. But not being, so being respectful, fearful, even as the Old Testament would would say, reverently respectful uh, and thankful 
and and in this time of the year too we have the the month of November in America we celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday this month at the end of the month and that thankfulness should be directed to God first and foremost and only really for the things that we have for the country that we have for the blessings that we have here uh, for the salvation that we have it paramount out of that through Jesus Christ so if we fail to pray in good times we may develop a false sense of security trusting in our own might in the good times if we're not keeping up if we're not praying it's all me I did that and then when the I comes in there's there's kind of a, a saying in, in team sports there's no I in team and there really isn't there's no I in, in uh, accomplishments and work for God either. It's God through me, praise the Lord for that, uh, has, has worked this out. But giving the credit and the honor and glory to God first. And then when the first wave of adversity comes, if we're trusting in our own goodness and greatness, when adversity comes, we're crushed. And if we fail to pray during difficult times, we plunge into doubt and depression. So these are the things that we need to be focused on as far as where is our prayer life? Where is each of our prayer lives? Or is it focused on what I want? Is it, or is it focused on what I want in God? What do I want? Not what I want from God, not like he's a magical Santa Claus that gives me anything I want. But am I, am I aligned with God's will? Is my will aligned with God's will? And if we find ourselves reading his word, we can grow closer to him and understand him. And our communication channel to God is prayer. And maybe maybe later, we won't get any questions tonight, we'll just wrap it up here. There's an interesting um, thing called Shannon's theorem in communication systems. And I don't know, Brother Austin, you ever heard of that before? Now maybe we'll basically explain it another time. But we can con we can consider our prayer life as a communication channel to God. There's myself and God as the transmitter and receiver. And in between, there's a channel. And this channel or this connectivity, the way that we communicate with God is through reading his word and prayer. And if, that, if there's noise in that channel, now I'm maybe getting a little bit into it, there's an issue in our life, in our heart, we're not doing something right, then that communication channel is corrupted. But, but if, we're, if we're seeking the Lord and his will and his righteousness first, uh, through prayer and reading his word, that's the best thing for us. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our evening here tonight to be able to begin this lesson here, to focus on prayer the importance of it lord we'll be looking at it some more in coming coming lessons here lord but we thank you that you are a god that is not hidden from us that you are not unknowable you are very knowable you've sent your son to die on a cross and rise again that we might know you closer and one day soon know you even closer yet when when he returns lord we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to pray to thank you for all that you've done 
to acknowledge you for the the God the goodness and the mercy that you have toward us. Lord, and to thank you and, and confess our faults, to be able to talk with you, Lord, as, as a noble God. We thank you for that. Help us to not neglect our prayer life. And we pray that if you tarry, bring us back here safely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.